Good evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and this is the Ecology Hour. Tonight, I am joined by Regina Hirsch, the Executive Director of Watershed Progressive, a consulting and design build collaborative focused on appropriate water management through a regenerative whole systems approach. They integrate tools like gray water reuse, rainwater harvesting, and stormwater management with an understanding of both ecological processes and client needs. In addition to founding the Watershed Progressive, Regina is an executive board member of the Tulele Foundation and the California Water Reuse Policy Council. I'm particularly happy to have Regina join us tonight because as one of the monthly contributors to the Ecology Hour, my focus for the last few shows has been on water. Over the summer, we have discussed how water is stored underground, what the long and short term trends of rainfall and stream flow have been, and more recently, we discussed how California water policy governs the ways that we can use and store water. Tonight, we have the opportunity to discuss what individuals can do in their homes and backyards when it comes to making decisions about how we manage water, energy, plants, and soil, and most of all, community. So Regina, thanks for taking the time to join me tonight. Hi, Anna, thanks for having me. So last Friday, the Washington Post featured an article about water security in Mendocino County. Uh, the article is kind of perfect because it covered a lot of the topics that I have discussed on the show this summer, like the differences between how water is stored underground on the coast versus inland, the different ways that water can be stored and used, and the inconsistencies and unpredictability of water supplies in Western North America, which is largely due to climate change. Across the West, dry conditions have severely impacted individuals and communities, particularly here in Mendocino County, and especially in the village of Mendocino, where there's limited capacity to store groundwater. The article also featured a rainwater harvesting tank that was recently designed and installed by Watershed Progressive at the historic Joshua Grindle House Inn. And I was wondering if we could just start with you telling us a little bit about the work that you did at Joshua Grindle and about Watershed Progressive and how you came to, you know, work on a project here on the Mendocino Coast. You bet. I'd, I'd love to. And the yeah, thanks again for for hosting me on this topic on the show. It's it's so important. You know, there's so many of us out here who are doing so much work, either in policy or resource science, and trying to make sure that all of our actions, or even in in landscape architecture or green building or flood control. And yet, where does it really come down to, like, who lives on the land, who works on the land, where we play, where we, where we visit, and how can we actually help attend the lands that we're living on? And 
it can be really confusing these days. So I think it's great that you went through all the topics that you did in the last couple of weeks um, or months, and now you're bringing it back home to what can people actually do? Because mm. it is, it does all start with the community members, whether they're a business owner or it's where they live or where they work. It's it's all up to them. So I think you asked um, who Watershed Progressive is, a little bit about our work, and but also how do we get to do a, a job um, and really help community here in Mendocino? Um, so I won't be long-winded about Watershed Progressive. I, I think you already kind of gave us a nice introduction, but we're here to help connect communities and landowners, land stewards with their watersheds. And we really are after that juicy nugget of how do we create a healthy, resilient future together through watershed appropriate actions that are just really easy. How, how do we get to the low hanging fruit first and connect community members together to those practices? Um, we're a little bit odd. We're a for-profit company that does do, as you said, design and then build. And I like to call it ground truthing so that we know what we're doing because a community, as a, as a community, we're going to try different things and we're going to fail and we're going to try different things and learn together. And so when we learn together and we're not scared to, you know, just try something, that's when we make the most progress through history. Um, and that kind of brings me to how I came to be in Mendocino through community. And um, I, we have a couple offices, probably the closest office is up near Yosemite. And uh, one of our um, colleagues and community members here moved to Mendocino a while ago. And they uh, own an inn at Joshua Grindle Inn. And they called and said, you know, our town needs help. Uh, the drought is really upon us. And we, our well is okay. But our neighbor's well is not okay. And their neighbor, you know, our community is hurting. Can you come and uh, help us. So that's how we um, started off on the conversation. And we said, you know, let's, let's have a community gathering and talk about what are the local approaches that can help the local area, because it's different everywhere. Let's talk about it together. And then at the same time, let's make sure we don't just talk about it. Let's do something. And so uh, we help them very quickly install with some community members. Uh, I think it's a 5,000 gallon rainwater system as the first step towards a 30,000 gallon system, which is what we found out we, they, they needed after mm -hmm. analysis. Um, and then also they're on the road to a gray water system because that they're, they're a lodge. They have a lot of gray water. They just need to use it wisely because of their wells. Um, so I think that's kind of how we got introduced to Mendocino and then also how um, I started walking around on the, the streets and, and meeting neighbors and trying to understand um, what are the right approaches. And really, it's not me that's going to tell anyone what it is. It's, it's all of us together. And so this is just a first step for this community 
to come together and understand that a lot of what they need is right in their backyards. Well, yeah, I I feel like I have been getting a lot of questions from community members about what they can do and and I and uh I was really excited to see some rainwater harvesting occurring in the village of Mendocino in particular because of their very limited groundwater supply. And so when I think about water security in an area where there are not extensive groundwater, you know, storage reservoirs, um, rainwater harvesting seems like a, a really logical approach to enhancing your water security at a local level. And so I, I wonder if you run into this a lot, but do you feel like there's a, a kind of a misunderstanding or misconception about how much space or what, uh, how big of a roof you need to have to actually, you know, have a, a substantial rainwater harvesting cistern? Oh, all the time. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I used to be the biggest naysayer about rainwater and gray water and stormwater. I hate to say it, but I, I mean, I really, I really had to spend the time and understand some of these approaches, which, you know, our, our great grandparents and their great grandparents did in different ways um, that, you know, a lot of different tribal um participants would use in different manners and we don't have to always harvest the rain in a round tank that might take up a lot of room we can put it in the ground and i know in mendocino that may or may not be the most appropriate place but there are really great new technologies that are married to some more traditional ecological um uh technologies and those are you know everything from how can we harvest it in um more of a constructed wetland or rain garden and reuse or pond much less there's there are square tanks there are under your deck tanks there are of course subsurface tanks um there are tanks that are not tanks that are more like if you want to call them in over engineered um, milk crates that can go under parking lots um, in any shape or form and you can drive um, heavy equipment over. So there's all kinds of ways throughout the world we have come up with ways to harvest the rain. And there is more than twice the amount, even in this last drought year. So last year, there was more than twice the amount of water that the Mendocino Village needed that fell on their rooftops, only on their rooftops. That's not even on their parking lots and other places that they needed. Um, and so the question is really, how can we innovate and collaborate together? Because the water is there even in the drought year. Um, and of course, we also want to sink it into the ground and slow it and um, make sure it goes back into the groundwater. But we also can innovate these really new ideas together you know is the is the market a place we can collaborate of course is the is the is the the back of your yard under your porch a place um 
And these small actions, you know, they add up. And that's what I think is really the most empowering to me is that we can innovate these different solutions together. And there's more than enough rain. It's it's something I can say really strongly in Mendocino. Then I also work all over the state and down even in the Ventura area where you're getting a third to a half of the rainfall. Um, and it's a little bit harder, but even there, they have enough water on their rooftops to get through some of the lean times. So it's all a question of how can you do it and how can you look at the opportunities in your own business, your own backyard, in a different way that you can start to look at a way to capture and harvest that rain for abundance. And and that's something new for almost everybody I talk to. And they want to argue with me about it. And it's kind of fun because then we come up with solutions together. But so I don't know if that helps answer what you were going after, Anna. Yeah, no, it's it's it. Um, in fact, I, the questions are just reeling as you're talking. But um, so you're likely aware that we experienced a pretty significant storm um, over the last week. And this follows a couple of years of extremely dry conditions. And, you know, like I was doing some kind of rough calculations and, and had come up with an estimate that we, the water year, I don't know if this is common knowledge, but the water year starts October 1st. So happy water year, Regina. Um, and, and in October alone, in Mendocino County, we've probably uh, accumulated about a, a quarter of our annual rainfall. And, and it really was, I was really thinking about this as the rain was falling in this really significant event, because a lot of that rain came in about a 24-hour period on Sunday. And I was thinking, this is the time to harvest rainwater because we're going to lose a lot of this rainfall as runoff. And runoff inefficiency is one of the things that is being discussed in the face of climate change and all the ways that our water resources are going to be impacted by a changing climate, uh, in including extended periods of dry conditions and extreme weather events. You get these runoff efficiencies. And uh, I'm just kind of curious, and I, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, so, so uh, <laughs> tell me to bug off if this is too much. But because <laughs> I've, I've been to the, the site that you recently installed, the tank that you installed at Joshua Grindle, and, you know, it's a standard 5,000-gallon poly tank. So I think most people can conceptualize that. But what I was really impressed by was um, that it was connected to a fairly small uh, a secondary building to the inn. So it's not even collecting the, the rainwater off of the inn itself. At least that was my understanding. And I'm curious, do you have an idea of how much rainwater was potentially harvested in that tank from that weekend event? Well, okay, let's, let's do this exercise. <clears throat> so I think we have roughly, uh, let's say a thousand square feet. And off of that 1,000-square-foot woodshed slash, you know, storage area that, um, by the way, I just want to say thanks to, you know, Kate and um, Ken Taylor over at Joshua Grindle Inn because um, they really are leaders in their community 
to, their well wasn't even going dry and they decided to do this um, to really model and demonstrate and help inform does this work for their community. So first of all, thanks to you, Ken and Kate, and also Lucy and all the great staff over there and the rest of the community that helped. Um, they had a thousand square feet, a little under that, but let, let's say a thousand so we can make the calculations easy for everyone to follow. Every inch of rain that falls on a roof, it seems like you need so much and it's just not worth it. Um, you literally get about 600 gallons per thousand square feet per inch of rain. So they, they most likely got around 600 gallons in their tank per inch. Now, I've heard all kinds of stories after talking to people in Mendocino this last week. What fell on their roof? Now, I've heard 9 inches, 10 inches, 4 inches, 7 inches. But I can tell you if, if they received, you know, 8 inches, their tank is full. And so they have a full tank that will get them to... Um, help them with either laundry, um, mm -hmm. irrigation, doing fire hydration buffer strips around their property, promoting pollinators, growing food, um, and even flushing toilets. So that is 5,000 gallons. Now, if they use that during the winter, which is key, they can use that inside or somewhere else that is code-friendly then that tank will become more empty, and we call that a drawdown, so that when it rains again, there's more room in the tank. So providing, it's not just how much water falls on their roof, it's finding a good match to where you're gonna send that water in the rainy season. Um, and most of the resorts and inns in the area have a really good match. So I applaud all of you who are running those Resorts and inns, that's, that's a rough job. Um, I know also water is the most demanding for you. You also have the best match in order to really make the best cost benefit for rainwater. You can use that water in a way, um, use it while it's raining, essentially. The other group that can use rainwater effectively with small roofs is for livestock. Um, that's really effective as well. So that thousand square foot little woodshed, which I think it was just under that, most likely is close to full. And I, I haven't talked to Ken or Kate today or the last few days, um, but that is that is just a, after one storm. So how far does that get you? And what is a family of four? Where, do, where you live, like with your family? Most people need about between 20 and 40,000 gallons of storage to live for emergency use. So that gets you a quarter to an eighth of the way to where you need to be to have emergency, your emergency um, uses covered. Again, there's a lot of, this isn't something you can drink. <laughs> um, right out of the tap. It's only for non-potable, meaning you can't drink it, um, but you could treat it and use it for some other uses. But it really does help save the potable water that you have to either buy 
or get trucked in or we're trying to, you know, work really hard with our community services district or our RCDs or Child Unlimited, you know, any of it makes that really important potable water go farther. That surface water, that groundwater, it makes it go farther. So using the water that falls on that thousand square feet might not seem like a lot, but it it really can go far depending on how you use it. So what about, uh, I mean, rainwater harvesting can, and you touched on this a little bit, it's not just collecting rain and putting it in a tank. Rainwater harvesting can happen on the land. Um, and there's other ways to uh, reuse water that can really help um, extend an individual or community's ability um, to, to save that potable water. So can we talk a little bit about some of those other um, ways that you can um, use water more wisely at your home? And, and, and I realize that, you know, even beyond just water conservation and, and water security, there's other factors that can come into play when you're kind of scoping out these types of projects at a particular at any particular location so it, maybe it would even be good to kind of walk through your process as you approach a new place like how, how do you scope out the opportunities that um, any single location may hold um, like what's your approach to envisioning someone's um, you know conservation ethic in their home yeah, well, I, I, so I'll do I'll do my best in a few minutes because I, I know we only have an hour. <laughs> um, but I, I want to say before I just kind of go through a laundry list for everyone that I started off this perspective from thinking more traditionally about, you know, low flow fixtures, yawn. We're tired of hearing about those. Um I got a, even though I was a naysayer initially of like gray water and rainwater and stormwater, um, I'll, I'll cover those briefly. I want to make sure we understand there's some other efficiency um, approaches that are local in your own yard that you might not know have anything to do with water. So I'll just just put on your listening caps for a minute. Um, so here's the laundry list. I'll try not to bore you, but first of all, it's this will bore you. Besides, make sure you have low flow fixtures. Okay, water efficiency. There's so many new innovations all the time. Secondly, um, look for leaks. You know, most of us live in places that are over five to ten years old. Leaks can happen anytime, anywhere, and we have incredible estimates of within the United States, but especially in older communities like the village of Mendocino and others, our older homes leak. And when we say leak, we mean 8 to 22% of all our water just goes through to the ground. So it's not if we want to call it, I don't think I can say this on the air, but I'm going to sexy. It's it's not something you want to do, but just go check out, check for leaks. There are leak detection services. It can help you almost singularly to reduce the amount of water 
that you're you're demanding. Um, next, um, and before I get into the next, I want to say with this group of tools, we call them now the toolkit. There's there's different toolkits, but um, in this toolkit, the water conservation toolkit combined with water reuse and these other soil-based approaches and, and, and other kind of nuanced approaches, I haven't seen a home yet that can't reduce to their potable water need. And so there's always a fun puzzle. If you're willing to try the New York Times puzzle, and I don't know how many people I know actually complete it, but you have a puzzle. It's called your place where you live or you work. And look at it and try to figure out how, what is the best way for you to meet the water budget. At least get it all the way down to your potable demand. If we can all do that, we're in, we're in business. So one of, some of the other ways to do that when I look at a site is, okay, well, yeah, how much, how much water falls on your roof? Water that falls on your roof is cleaner than water that falls on the ground, which is called stormwater. So we can use rainwater that falls on your roof for things like laundry, flushing toilets, irrigation, of course, and fire resilience. Um, so we look at that. We'll also look at how much water falls on the ground, <laughs> which is some states call it site water. Uh, California calls it storm water. And usually that's the most abundant source of water. We can uh, recharge our wells we can um, deliver it to roots of trees. We can put it into dry wells. We can do all kinds of things with that stormwater and rain gardens and build habitat and food. Um, there's a lot of great examples of that in Mendocino already. I visited some of the businesses. They're, they're really doing some micro-scale stormwater measures. Um, then we also look at how much wastewater is coming out of your house. What, what's going down your drain? You, you bought it or you pumped it once, what's going down your drain? And so instead of calling it black water or gray water, we call it resource water. Um, gray water is in California, anything that's coming out of your laundry or any sink that doesn't have food uh, or your showers. Um, you can use it in Mendocino, easily it's really good uh soils to distribute it. it's great for fire resilience wonderful for irrigation um can build habitat you can be growing food there's lots of ways to use it the only hurdle for those in the village might be there is a lot of wells and you need to stay away from your wells or just filter it first and make sure you go through the county and get a permit um, but it's not difficult there's no there's no rocket science here so we look at the gray water we'll also look at the black water which is also a resource um, in your communities in some cases that black water is going to maybe a future recycled water so you want to make sure to talk to you if you have a, a, a sewer district such as the community services district or other if you don't, maybe that's a resource that you can reuse. It does take typically some engineering. Um, again, depending if you're trying to be completely off the grid with your water, it is a resource. Uh, the next thing we look at is what are we doing? How are we irrigating our plants? Um, if any, maybe you've given up on irrigating plants. Um, what is your 
soil look like? If you have any anymore, remember soil is alive and dirt is dead. So you may have said, well, I'm just in such a drought, I'm not gonna water anything. Um, we wanna water our trees. We wanna water some of our base plantains. We wanna cover our soil and hydrate. So when the rains come, the rains actually percolate and hydrate our soils for fire resilience, for well recharge, to help keep any kind of salinity issues or water quality issues away in our, our wells. Um, so making sure that you cover your soil with mulch, treat it well, water the plants that you can, especially your base trees and the trees that are shading and protecting your homes and providing windbreaks. I've been there when it's really windy. <laughs> um, and creating habitat, which is really important. Our pollinators are crashing right now. Our food systems are crashing. And it's important that we can be resilient as a community, which I've, I've really been learning. Mendocino is amazing. You all in Mendocino know how to work together during times of, of crisis. So, um, and then there's also one other thing that I would say, me, making sure to look at, like, how do you live in that space? What is your place or your sense of that place? Who used to live there? What is there? Um, making sure you take a moment and make sure you can look what the position is in your watershed, in your forests, in your fiber shed, in your different food sheds. How do you want your position to be? What did it used to be and so just taking a minute and just looking at the site and reimagining what you can for your site and also where do you want to be with that site how do you want to attend and be there in the future and what do you want your legacy for that site and i know that sounds like oh that has nothing to do with water it most certainly does because that's how we actually get things done as humans is that last piece of what motivates us. Are we actually going to go out there and make sure that irrigation system's working or um, how do we want to actually manage or steward or participate in our landscapes? Uh, so that's my, that's my list. There's more, but I think that's probably the, the short one. And all these things can really add up for, in many communities to different values, such as, you know, drinking water or air quality or vulnerable uh, populations having higher quality of drinking water. And Mendocino, really, you do have everything at your fingertips to be able to get there. So with that, maybe I'll... Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, the whole, the, our county is comprised of lots of tight-knit communities, and each yeah. community has uh, kind of a different, um, I think each community has issues with water, water scarcity right now, but they're all coming at it from a different approach, and so, mm -hmm. like, one of the things I was thinking about while you were talking is, you know, all the approaches that you just referenced are are definitely applicable across a, a really uh, broad setting, including those 
situations where you live in an area where you're actually provided municipal water. And so maybe you could touch a little bit on even how these types of practices are beneficial even when you know your water supply is tied to literally you turning on the on and off the tap and i'll use fort bragg as an example because right now um fort bragg's water supply is also um definitely limited comparatively to other years and they have just started um providing or supplementing their own supply through uh, the desalination of brackish water. And so can you talk a little bit about like why it's still really important, even in the context, if you live in a bigger area like Ukiah or Willits or Fort Bragg, where your water is tied to a municipal system, how these um, different practices still um, contribute towards community water security? Definitely. Um, and, and just the, the reason I, I um, pushed into or leaned into this subject, you know, 10, 15 years ago is really the water energy nexus. Um, and one of the things I didn't mention, by the way, is to always make sure that your hot water <laughs> um, recirculation pumps are not too far away from your fixtures. But I think I think for us to understand that we we spend an awful lot of energy moving water to our homes, and that that's okay. It's afforded us better healthcare um, or health. It's provided some centralized systems are really important for advancements in our our um, health. Um, it's provided us emergency services. Um, mm -hmm. what it doesn't provide us is redundancy um, and resilience. And we, it's, it's not about either or, it's, a both, it's about both and. Um, we want to be able to be connected to these really hard working systems that are reliable and have that emergency water supply that these water districts, and, well, and they're very innovative. I mean, having brackish water through a desal is not energy efficient, but it's innovative. Um, it doesn't mean everyone will appreciate the innovation, but it will get them water when they need it. And so making sure that we're using every drop of water to the best that we can where, again, where you live right now, wherever you're listening to this, or wherever you work and where you play, making sure that we're slowing that water down and using that first bit of water to the best purpose first, and then supplementing with our innovations only as needed. And those innovations are astounding. There are so many incredible ideas that we are having now as a community. Um, there's traditional knowledge that we should be tapping into of ways that we could utilize methods and ways that we could um, implement more so. And then there's going to be things that we learn in the future. And so centralized systems are not the bad guy here. Um, it's our demand and how we use it as the end user. 
And so where the water comes from, whether it's a brackish water plant, a surface water diversion or a groundwater well, it's up to us. It's not up to someone else. It's up to us to use it in the best way that we can and use it as many times as we can and really look at our landscapes as our own miniature watersheds. And so if we use it wisely and we start to really be participants in that, I think then um, that's really key. Now, where does our water come from? We have to understand where it comes from. And I think that's almost almost 90% of our population doesn't really understand or have visited where our water comes from because even those of you who live in Mendocino on wells, we, we don't dive down into the substrata. We don't see where the the water actually is coming from below our feet. It's, it's kind of almost a mythological domain, much less uh, a stream flow diversion, um, a, um, a, a well outside of the purview, a spring box, or a high energy intensive, um, uh, but very innovative approach such as desal. So for us to understand where it's coming from, we're always bringing it from somewhere else to us, and it's our responsibility to use it the best wisely. Now, the majority of our water that we can use, we should be using best, but falls on our sites first. And if we're using that the best of our ability with collaboration with our community, then we can feel good about supporting the extra advancements such as brackish water and desal that I know a lot of our communities have problems with. But if we're using the water to the best of our ability in our landscapes and treating our land with care, then, and we need, still need some extra water for habitat or other, then we can make those decisions together. But it is important for us to know where is our water coming from? How much water is there? What is its quality and what are the effects? But also, how are we using the water that's already here on our landscapes, on our rooftops, in our homes, before it just goes away and becomes a problem for something else? Right. So I keep um, thinking about something you've said a couple of times throughout our conversation tonight about how you were a little bit of a naysayer and initially <laughs> about these. And, and I, I, I know a little bit about your history and how you got involved in the work that you do now, but I, I actually didn't know that you were somewhat speculative at first. So I'm, I'm definitely curious <laughs> if you can elaborate on <laughs> what got you here. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, I guess those are um, maybe two different questions. I'm only going to answer one, I think, cause, because of our time. But, you know, it's uh, my training was more in monitoring and um, out of curiosity in physics and geology. And I, I was speculative about, um, you know, reusing gray water and uh, rainwater. They, they, they seem kind of clunky to me and not as, as I didn't see the, the benefits 
um, and really from an ecological standpoint, they felt very managed. Um, those systems, we, we live in a managed world. The minute we put a footprint of a home um, or we even create a, a, a burn or we start to manage, we, we are managing. And so um, anything we can do to either mitigate and or adapt to the site that we've decided to, again, live or work or play in, then those approaches are important for us to think about. We're rainwater, collecting the water that would have normally fallen in the ground and replenished our groundwater and, and watered some of our forests or chaparral or, or riparian or our different, you know, habitats, for us to capture it and reuse it and really what, what we would call attenuate that hydrograph or slow down the peak so it doesn't flood and use it for fire, um, use it for recharge, use it for, reuse it a couple times. Um, that started to become more elegant once I understand the systems that it was helping us manage or as one of my staff members is, is bringing to my attention, that we're attending to that cycle of water. And so it becomes more elegant once you start to use it and you can become more creative with it. You don't wanna use any of these systems as a cookie cutter approach. You want to use them with your community or on your site with a sense of place of where you live. It's not just a package system. It's not gonna work as well. They are simple systems. You can usually install most of them in a day, but you want to do them thoughtfully for the way you manage. And um, then they're elegant. Then they become more the ecosystem of where you live. And that was a transformation for me. And then I think that it's also a, it's a transformation for properties that we've seen. And it, it gets to the values that's important to me and a lot of our clients and communities, which is making that little discrete nugget of like, how do we become resilient and healthy in our community and watersheds? Well, these systems, such as just using the water a couple times before it goes, just like nature does, whether it be with a few tanks or a few systems like gray water or mulch, let's do it. Let's make it elegant. Let's be creative. And so um, that's what kind of created the transition for me. And yeah, boy, Laura Allen, if you're out there, she knows how much I argued with her in the first gray water action class that I took. <laughs> so <laughs> owed to the owed to our mentors in life and to us really listening and, and trying to see what will work for us. Um, and, and being open to change, because I think yeah, in particular, yeah. given that we are living in a time of so much change, whether it's environmental, social, you know, political, <laughs> medical, we're dealing in so much change. And I think um, to in order to respond to that change, we really do have to be open to thinking about things different to managing things differently um 
and just accepting that what we have known as the normal may not be the normal anymore. And that's something like, especially thinking about the rain that just fell, you know, it's great that we're having this um, good start to our water year and I work in fisheries, so I am super excited. I want to see <laughs> our streams yeah. full so that salmon can migrate upstream. But I'm also worried because there is no guarantee right now, especially in all the uncertainty that surrounds our climate, that this rain will continue through the winter. Um, and I don't even feel like I can look at long-term trends to help inform me or to um, comfort me. Like, it's it's all very new. I mean, weather's always been unpredictable, but there have been some common trends when you look back at data sets, 6, 10, 30 years or 15 years. And now they're saying, well, we can really only look at the last six or seven years and call that like an average. So, you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying because I do think that as a whole, with resource management in particular, we really have to start thinking a little differently about how we want to manage our resources. And um, there's a lot of opportunities to really to have efficient resource management at a very small scale, at a local level, as small as your home. Um, so just a reminder to the listeners that we are listening to the Ecology Hour, and I am interviewing Regina Hirsch, who's the uh, Executive Director of Watershed Progressive. Um, Regina has graciously offered to answer questions if people have them, and I can imagine there's lots of questions swirling around in folks' brains. Um, so you can call in to 707-895-2448 if you have some questions and be patient with us. We'll try to get to your call as we can. Um, while we're waiting on potential calls to come in, Regina, I am curious, um, you know, if, if I, as I'm listening to you, uh, I can imagine there's a lot of people that are, you know, excited about some of the um, different uh, approaches to managing water at, at a kind of at your home or on a land, small landscape scale might be. And um, are, you know, probably curious where you start. Like, what would you say to someone who's interested in looking at making their home more efficient? Um, wh what are some resources that are available and like where can people just kind of start? Like, Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I'd say the, fir the first thing, of course, is to look at, um, you know, your leaks. Like I said, um, there are, all you have to do is um, if you have a meter on your well or a meter at some other point of connection just turn your all your fixtures off and see make sure everything's off and see if you have leaks and then turn them on if the meter's running you have a leak um it's a pretty simple process you can turn a fixture on one at a time and um start to log that in um epa water sense has a leak detection to give you an idea of what the fixtures are mm -hmm. Um, can pull. So I would do that. I would also start to look at how much water falls on your roof. 
Um, where are your problem areas? Because usually if there's a problem, there's a solution. Um, so are you getting some sort of flooding or um, head cutting or erosion? Um, is there anything outside that's a problem? Is there anything inside that's a problem? I would write those pieces down. Does it take you a long time when you stand at the sink to wash your dishes for the hot water to come in or when you're taking a shower? Um, nobody's going to really get there by putting buckets of water or buckets in their shower. I mean, some of us will do it, but we're not going to do a big transformative piece by putting buckets, but we can change how quickly that hot water comes on. We can put in gray water systems that because we're lazy, let's have, Let's admit it, that we'll just go water our trees as we're taking a shower. <laughs> so I would start to look at what are your habits. Um, watertoolkit.org is getting a nice little uh, refresh. And so in a, I think next week you can look there. Um, there's also your local RCD, I believe the Mendo Mendocino RCD or the California Association RCD site has some water um, help on their websites. And so I would look to your local RCD. I'd look to your local CSD for help as well, Community Services District. Um, and there's a whole host of other links, but I'd say why don't you check in on the watertoolkit.org, um, especially as of next week. It'll have some calculators and templates for you to look at and step-by-step -step instructions. Um, and I just want to add, um, I'm glad, Asia, that, or Asia, that you brought up the um, climate. Um, that We don't know if it's going to rain all, all winter. You might think we're out of the drought. These strategies will help buffer flood events. And as whether it rains a lot or rains not at all, these are the same strategies that will protect your land and your business either way. So that's what we really call resilience, right? So really buffering and giving us adaptations, whether it's feast or famine or flood or drought, um, and even for fires, these are the same strategies. 90% of all our strategies to help with all the external factors we're facing right now, fire, flood, drought, heat, these are, we just have to do the same approaches at, at home and in our businesses, and they will add up and give us support um, through these, these times of crisis. Yeah, well, it's obviously, I think it's probably been one of the the hot topics on most people's minds lately has just been, especially over the summers as wells became lower and lower. And admittedly, I am one of those people that has used a bucket to collect water <laughs> in my shower while I'm waiting for it to warm. Oh. Um, so, but, but yes, that makes a lot of sense. Like clearly getting an on-demand hot water heater would be a more efficient way to, uh, address that inefficiency, right? And sometimes it can be difficult, you know, if you don't own your home or if you're a renter, if you have financial right. issues, but it's, it's, you know, it's really important to talk about these 
making these types of improvements now. Um, I think it's easy as the rains return to and and wells replenish and tanks fill to uh, kind of think about, okay, well, that was rough. We made it through it. Um, let's go get on with our lives. But this is actually the time in my opinion to really start planning um for the next extreme dry event because that does seem very likely in our future future climate scenarios we just don't know when exactly it will be um yeah and i i just want to say that even if there's not a, a future drought if it's just even where we're at right now or in between it's we can create more pollinator habitat. We can create more food. You know, you could be eating different food at home. You know, down in Ventura, they can help stream flow. They can help rivers um, have better temperatures for steelhead by doing these practices. So all these actions add up. So I just want to make sure that we're conveying to everyone, you know, a recirculation pump, it's $200 you might need permission of your landlord, but some homes can save up to 70,000 gallons in just positioning a really, really well-positioned recirculation pump to make sure that hot water comes on when you need it and you're not just letting water run down the sink. Right. So I know um, you've been involved uh, in particular like with some policy work where uh, you and others were working on improving like the California plumbing code so that um, it is easier to um, install gray water systems or other types of water reuse systems. And, and I'm just wondering, like, on a policy level, what are you involved in right now? And, and what else can we be doing to help promote these types of um, practices to make things easier for people to kind of take them and adopt them in their own home. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's always this disconnect between policy and like what actually we want to have happen on the ground. And um, right now, you know, we're we're putting a lot more of our focus on um, making the space for communication and. Uh, we're having localizing California waters and um, the conference and regional meetings, which by the way, there is one next week. If anyone wants to participate or, or chime in, there's a forum November 4th. And if you go to uh, localizing californiawaters.com, I'm sorry, .org, um, you can sign up for free to attend the forum next Thursday, November 4th and learn more about these tools and chime in. Um, but I, I think we're really trying to create more of a space right now that we can listen to each other and understand in a time of crisis, everyone's got a good idea, but what? how do we create frameworks to go faster, not just create plans that sit on the shelf? Um, how do we create workforces that can help implement all these things what what if everybody came forward and said sure we'll, we'll put a we'll put forty thousand gallons at every house we'll go ahead and put that storage for you everywhere do we have the workforce to do it 
do they know how to do it with quality and so it's durable and it doesn't create a lot of maintenance issues? No, we don't. So there's there's a whole job revolution here. There's a policy revolution, but we we need everybody to um, talk about this and we need to say what it is that we need and what we're hearing. Um, so we're trying to create that space, if you want to call it policy, in which um, policymakers and you and everyone here can actually chime in and say that we're going to get this done together and make our homes and our businesses more resilient. Um, and that will be part of the solution. Yeah, I, I was thinking as you were speaking about, you know, there's a lot of um, government funding that's coming, going to be released soon in response to the drought. And as more and more people kind of show what they need, I think there could be more opportunities, too, for there to be programs and subsidies and incentives for landowners to take on these types of actions at home as well or that's my hope maybe for sure i mean we've been working with the rcds um and some of the water districts and i know we've been talking with the mendocino community services district and others about a way for um uh, everybody equity based measures to to mm -hmm. really be able to access these tools um, the Land Resilience Partnership is one of those. It's just a programmatic approach that if you need help, like direct technical assistance, you're, you're saying, okay, Anna, Regina, I don't really know what you're talking about, but I do want help. There are ways for your local partners to go ahead and, and just be able to very quickly give you help directly at your door. And that means for fire, for flood, for drought, for food. And, and so we really need to start to bring all these pieces that are connected together. The Land Resilience Partnership is one of many different direct technical assistance programs, but it does have a multi, what we call multi-benefit approach, which will be very fundable. And so we're trying to create a way that funding can come all the way down to those businesses, to the people that own properties and those who rent properties, not just owners, but renters. Um, and so in that land resilience partnership, I'm, I'm hoping those programs like that and others will help scale the transformation that we need and give everyone here in Mendocino a way to actually access those approaches that they just need a little help with well uh that is probably all the time we have but i am so appreciative regina of you sitting and talking with me um just want to throw out to the listeners if you want to learn more about watershed progressive you can find them online at www.watershedprogressive.com and uh, again, just thank you, Regina. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us tonight. It, you're, it's really been a great conversation, and I always learn lots when I get to talk to you. Uh, likewise, Anna. And uh, thanks again for, for having me and really hosting this conversation and, and 
here's to many good conversations in the future with all of the Mendocino community. Yeah, we hope to see you on the coast a little bit more. Oh, can't wait. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.